Hello, friends, and welcome to another episode of The End of Sport, a podcast on capitalist sport, labor, and harm in sporting culture with your hosts, Johanna Mellis, Nathan Kalman-Lamb, and Derek Silva. If you're enjoying the show, please reach out to us on Twitter or Instagram at endofsportpod, or check out our website at www.theendofsport.com, where you can find details on how to support the show via Patreon. With that said, we hope you enjoyed this episode of The End of Sport. Dr. Christina Fryer is a lecturer in Black British history at Goldsmiths University of London, where she researches and teaches courses on British colonial history, Caribbean history, and Black history with a focus on comparative slavery and and emancipation studies, as as well as the history of disasters and sport. Her forthcoming book manuscript is titled The Measure of Empire, Disaster and British Imperialism in Post-Emancipation Jamaica. She moreover was selected as a new generation thinker of 20, in 2020 for the UK's Arts and Humanities Research Council and has also received high praise for, a com- for her commentary on sports, where she has written really excellent pieces for Media Diversified and The Toast, which we will absolutely be linking in the show notes for you listeners. And, and in these pieces, she's really, um, really very rightly critiqued, um, amongst many other things, uh, the white swimming community and media for its racism from several angles. We are also joined today by Dr. Matt Hodler, who is a repeat guest for listeners familiar with our Swimming Week, with our swimming week episodes, which if you haven't listened to them, we will absolutely also be linking them in the show notes, and we really encourage you to check them out. Um, also in part because this episode is very much a continuation and expansion of those conversations. Matt is an assistant professor of sports media and communications at the University of Rhode Island. As a sports scholar, his wide-ranging research interests and publications have focused on racialized nationalism, gender, the Olympics, and international sports structures, mediated representations of sport, internet memes, and swimming. Um, So Matt, we're really glad to have you back. Um, And and really, I can't express how excited I am to be having this conversation with you both. So thank you so much for joining us and welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. I'm really looking forward to this conversation. Yeah, this is, it's great to be back and I look forward to this also. Excellent. Um, so this episode, as you will see by the title, is an analysis of uh, the racist actions of white Olympic swimmer Cleek Keller and his um, active participation and contribution to the white supremacist terrorist attack against the U.S. Capitol on January 6, 2020. Now, I'm not going to repeat his swimming accolades because enough media pieces have really highlighted his successes and done it in a way that seems to have intentionally downplayed his, his racism and his actions. Um, as many people have probably have heard from the media reports that have come out about it, he wore his Olympic jacket and was photographed and filmed and later identified and reported by former teammates uh, from what the media reports have said. Um, some images and still shots have showed him resting at ease, holding a water bottle while the police were gently clearing people, and I, and I emphasize gently, clearing people out of the rotundra. And I really want to be clear about what this was and not be ambiguous about what happened at all. Uh, The attack was a white racist attack and a terrorist attack. And and full stop, there really is no sort of question about that. Um, And we want to be clear about what it was because much of the media is is portraying the whole thing as sort of an act of white lower class economic disgruntlement. I know disgruntlement's not a word, but that was sort of how how, um, what I think about it. 
Um, Keller absolutely does not fit this bill, and and neither do many of the white terrorists at the heart of it. And and sort of as we're going to talk about in this episode, much of the media attention on Keller specifically um, focused on how he struggled with transitioning from his swimming career to his non-sport life, how he ended up homeless, etc., but had more recently, quote unquote, uh, pulled himself up by its bootstraps and sort of this hero story and seemed to be getting his life together. And I really say all this in quotes because as we're going to talk about and what I really look forward to hearing uh, Christina and Matt talk about is that this is a very particular intentional and intentional framing of his post-swimming life. And it is problematic to say the least. Now, I will stop there because I need to just stop talking, and I, and I really want to hear what our guests have to say about, about this whole thing. And, and sort of now that we have a bare-bones summary, um, I'd really like to ask you both, um, how do you make sense of what, Kel- of what Keller did and the significance of his actions in the U.S. and or internationally? And if there's anything that I left out that you think needs to be included, uh, please do. Um, now, let's start with Christina, and then we'll pivot to Matt. So, I mean, I think, you know, most of us uh, first um, came across this, you know, via social media. So, you know, I came across this uh, on Twitter um, and then, of course, you know, got picked up in, in the news. And I think there was a, a it, it was sort of of a piece in, in some ways with um, the sort of constant unpacking of uh, a number of these insurrectionists. Um, background so you know as 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 you uh, as you said joanna there's this narrative that um this is a you know an outpouring of economic distress and then we learn um you know somewhat unsurprisingly that you know the people who can leave work and just show up in washington dc um on a wednesday afternoon uh, are are people who you know have some you know measure of means and so uh you know there are a number of people who were flying in on private uh, on, on private planes um, a surprisingly high number of people who are working in real estate or uh, who were house flippers, uh, as we're increasingly learning a number of off-duty police officers. And so in some ways, um, the narrative, or certainly how I uh, encountered the narrative or, or was thinking about the news that Cleet uh, Keller had been part of uh, the insurrection, um, was in was in that, in that guise of, of, uh, of someone uh, who is disproving this idea that it is the economically disadvantaged or the economically anxious uh, who are the prime uh, uh, supporters of uh, of Trump in this particular in this particular form? Um, but then I think we you know we quickly saw these narratives emerging uh, that were trying to to p- push him into this narrative of economic distress. Um, so this discussion of uh, of the hard times that he in, encountered in the, I think it was the early 2010s, uh, where he was separated and then divorced from his wife, couldn't see his kids, uh, and then experienced uh, some homelessness. And the narratives around that, and in particular in some of the media pieces and some of the articles in in uh, the Washington Post, were presenting this as though that explains why he why he was there, um, mm-hmm. and and to really sort of minimize the the politics of his actions and, and sort of push him into, uh, in, into this economic distress narrative. And, you know, I, I am not that familiar with Cleet Keller's post uh, Olympic life. So, you know, I am not really that interested in, in, in speaking to that. Um, but for me as somebody who, you know, I, part of why I'm so interested in this is, you know, I swam in high school uh, and I've written about this. 
Um, and I, you know, had a little bit of talent in one particular area in, you know, in the uh, stroke of breaststroke. And this was something that financially we could not pursue. And, you know, my mother, I think, was was trying to see if we could make it work. And we just financially could not make it work. So for me, I associate the sport of swimming as one that is financially exclusionary uh, for many, many people. Um, you know, it, it is also a sport that is uh, that is a, a very white sport. This is and this is very obvious to see. Um, this is a sport that has very few um, uh, athletes of color um, and very, you know, even fewer uh, black athletes. Um, I think there are, you know, there are a number, there have been a number of mixed race swimmers, uh, some of whom we, some of whom their narratives have been very clear that they're mixed race, and some of them, uh, it has not been that clear, thinking of people like Nally Coughlin, for example. Um, and so this is a sport that is, part, that is mainly a white sport. Um, and part of that, not all of that, but part of that is around the financial, the, the financial difficulties of that sport. It, it is an incredibly expensive sport to participate in. And so to then have see these sort of rhetorical maneuvers trying to push uh, Keller into, you know, in, into the category of people who are you know, economically disadvantaged, you know, was really galling uh, to me, mm -hmm. given um, that, you know, whatever his background, excuse me, whatever his, you know, whatever his recent life circumstances, uh, at some point, uh, he and his family likely had the funds to uh, to for him to pursue one of the more expensive sports in, in the U.S. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, Matt? Yeah. <clears throat> excuse me. Sorry. Uh, I agree with a lot of what Christina just said. And um, I, I particularly like that where you were talking about how, um, like, that kind of rhetorical shift that um, pushing him into being, like, one of those, quote, unquote, economic anxiety or anxious people that the media seems to continue to um, paint uh, Trump supporters and um, I guess Republicans in general as over the last four years, um, even when they have those big boat rallies and those boats are tens of thousands of dollars for Trump. Um, and as you pointed out, like all of those Instagram posts of folks flying out uh, to DC on private jets mm -hmm. or just flying on commercial airlines, that's not very cheap either. And just having the, having the ability to take off work in the middle of the week. Um, to go storm the Capitol and then think that you can go back to your job has a certain kind of class um, and race privilege as well. Um, and I, I, I kind of came about it. I follow Swim Swam. Um, I wrote one small piece for them a few years ago. Um, and um, so I've been kind of looking at them. And this was, that's how I first heard about Keller's um, actions. And honestly, it's a very, it's a good factual story. Um, for a for a magazine that doesn't often do the kind of work other than like straight up swim stories, um, but it does very quickly, like you said, do that initial work of turning it into an individual problem or a personal problem, rather than thinking about societal and structural issues. Um, and then we also have that New York Times piece that does similar work, uh, and then that uh, Washington Post piece that I know we'll talk about in a little mm -hmm. bit, but that was basically as an apologist. Um, at, to kind of add a little bit of um, context to what Christine was saying about the uh, whiteness of the sport of swimming. So USA Swimming is the um, governing body of the sport of swimming in the United States. And as they 
said in their um, press conference, or I mean in their statement, Keller has not officially been a member since 2008. And I hope we return back to that because their code mm-hmm. of conduct gives them a little bit of leeway there. Um, but they um, have about 400, a little bit under 400,000 members um, as of 2019, I think. And over a third of their athletes don't respond to their race um, question in their membership mm. profile. It's not mandatory. Um, but for the 66% that do um, respond, uh, less than, let me make sure I get these numbers right. It's not the easiest. Less than 1.5% of the entire um, group is black. Um, mm-hmm. And over 40%, over 40 40, that's 45% of those folks that respond um, are white, um, which I think is skewed based on the fact that so few people respond to those numbers. Um, mm-hmm. So I think that's a good kind of hopefully context and to add to what Christina's really good points heard she made. Absolutely. And you know, we're absolutely going to get to the Washington Post piece. I have a lot of, I mean, I have a lot of anger about a lot of this stuff, but that really uh, sparked my ire as people saw on Twitter. Um, But, and I I really like what you both did about how you both contextualized it within this broader phenomenon of how the media has really falsely argued, like this is the base of Trump supporters and sort of, and, and mapped that onto how, how does Cleek Keller fit into this? Because as you both said, it's not that it's just an individual personal problem to him, right? It's it's a whole like societal national problem. Um, and it's also, I mean, and it's a swimming problem too, which is sort of going to get to the next question. Um, this next question that I have, which is essentially sort of how do Keller's actions fit within the white history of sport, Matt, that you already, that you already started talking about. And Christina, you also very, um, really personally talked about. And it's based on my understanding, which is sort of reflecting on my experiences as a D1 swimmer and then a club coach and the scholarly work that I'm familiar with, though I'm not a swimming scholar. Um, But it really seems that modern swimming seems to have a whiteness problem as the sport was created in its modern form and has been sustained to uphold its white character and power. And I really want to differentiate between the modern sport of swimming and aquatic activities um, sort of existed before and, and still continues to exist. And, and while we can also say that modern swimming is a patriarchal and sort of cis or straight sport that has very um, thoroughly discriminated against women and LGBTQ swimmers, today we're really focusing on its white racism. Um, and so I really look forward to hearing your analysis um, or sort of hear your thoughts about whether it has a whiteness problem. And, and the, the piece by the nation, I thought, um, focused on, did a really great job of focusing on the whiteness and racism of the International Olympic Committee, which is absolutely a huge part of the issue. Um, and, and as someone who is deeply in, in, interested in swimming because of my personal background, but who isn't a scholar of swimming or whiteness or black history, like I said, I really look forward to hearing both of your takes on this. And sort of what do you think about Cleet Keller within the histories of swimming, whiteness, black history, et cetera? Um, and we'll start with Matt and then um, go to Christina. Uh, yeah, I mean, I... I think this is a really good question. And I know we touched on this a little bit during the discussion during, and I know that you also with, I think uh, Kevin Dawson did a great job of talking about this mm-hmm. um, in September. Mm-hmm. Um, and like briefly that history of swimming, like if just kind of map, Jeff Wilsey also has this great, that great book, um, Contested Waters, this idea that like pools were initially um, 
public baths were initially segregated by gender and rate or gender and class uh, because they've charged certain amounts in different days. Um, and then the argument is that around the 19 teens and 20s and even 30s, you start to really see public pools become sites, um, prominent sites of racial discrimination and segregation and racial violence, um, a place where folks would literally try to kill um, black swimmers who were trying to utilize public public goods that they were paying for um, in terms of taxes. Um, and so I think, and then you, and then as Wilty kind of map, maps it out, then you get into um, this dereg or de uh, publicate public. I don't. That's not the right way of saying that. Um, defunding public um, recreational facilities, and then swimming pools turning into more private um, kind of neighborhood and backyard institutions, which kind of speaks to Christina's point earlier about like how that class um, elements kind of get reintroduced um, into this, because it's really expensive to um, own a pool. It's really mm -hmm. expensive to join a private club. Um, and pay for those fees. Uh, and as we know, um, race and class are not the same, but we know that there are a lot of similarities between um, uh, how um, race and class are opera operationalized together. Um, and so this idea that kind of like what um, Boykoff and Zyron were talking about too, um, the elitism, the elitism and the whiteness of the Olympic project itself and modern sport itself, uh, it, it makes sense that there would be a white swimmer um, wearing his Olympic garb and thinking it okay to wear his Olympic garb to a coup. Um, mm. And so, I mean, that's where I'm thinking, like it, it's, it's quite obvious in some ways. And, but if I think, if I think back also about the sport of swimming itself, um, as Christina pointed out, like how white it is in terms of just like watching it and looking at it. Um, and if you're a, um, observer of the sport um all you see is almost all you see is white bodies um i'm still kind of collecting my thoughts on this one um but today just earlier today um usa swimming put out a tweet today about mm -hmm. celebrating martin luther king day mm -hmm. and they hashtagged it M monday motivation and it was mm -hmm. um it was dr king it was king's tweet um, about if you can't fly, then run. If you can't run, then walk. If you can't walk, then crawl. But whatever you do, you have to keep moving forward. Martin Luther King Jr., um, hashtag MLK Day. And a picture of, I think it's um, Reese Whitley um, mm -hmm. as, the, as, the, as a black swimmer in the foreground of the race and then white swimmers everywhere else. And that sort of recasting of, Dr., uh, of Martin Luther King Jr.'s anti-racist words and actions as just individual motivation I think mm -hmm. speaks to kind of the things that we're trying, or at least I'm trying to get my hands on and think through the whiteness of the sport. Mm -hmm. oh, Christ oh, yeah, Christina, your thoughts. So, I mean, one of the things for, for me, and, you know, like, like you, Joanna, I am, um, you know, I, I think about something in terms of, you know, my own personal interest and, uh, and I'm not a, a swimming scholar or, uh, you know, in particular a scholar of the United States. Um, but one of the things that stands out to me about swimming as a sport um, is that it is both an elite sport um, that has a sort of leisure corollary. And, you know, there are, of course, other other sports that, that do um, that, that do have leisure corollaries. Um, but, you know, it requires uh, for that leisure, it requires you know, a fairly large piece of uh, of 
uh, equipment, as it were, in the pool. So it, we're mm-hmm. limited. Uh, so people's access is limited to where uh, where these things have been built. Um, and uh, and as Matt pointed out, you know, they're incredibly expensive. Um, you know, certainly when I was growing up, it was a it was a class marker of you know who had pools in, the, in their backyard and who, and who didn't. Um, and then I think the part of, uh, of of swimming that is that to me I, I think is unusual is that in addition to it being an elite sport uh, with a leisure uh, with a leisure corollary, it also is one of the few sports I think that also ties into a particularly important public safety matter, uh, which mm-hmm. is water safety. And um, USA Swimming has has uh, has I think since 2007 has had its make a splash campaign. Um, and it, one of the things that they have found in some of their research is that if your parents, um, cannot swim, regardless of race, you are, your, your chances of, of knowing how to swim or learning how to swim are quite slim. Um, and then, uh, uh, black people's parents are less likely to know how to swim. And so they are less likely, uh, to know how to swim themselves and on and on. And there's also higher rates of, uh, of Hispanic. Uh, children uh, or Latino children who cannot who cannot swim, and so um, you know it, it's it's one of these issues where where you see what what we're seeing at the elite level is is mirrored in this real tragedy of mm-hmm. uh, of uh, of this water safety uh, safety component, um, and you know in addition to sort of uh, the the sort of public safety component and water safety and you know learning how to swim as a safety measure. Um, if we return to this sort of leisure corollary, um, these spaces of, of pools are not that safe for uh, for black swimmers uh, and other other swimmers of color. They are, they have long been sites of violence, as uh, as Matt was talking about, and there is a, a lot of a literature on this. Um, and these are not necessarily places where uh, where black swimmers, as well as their families, uh, are going to be feeling all that comfortable. And I think that filter, in addition to the expense of the sport, that sort of filters up into the elite levels. I think most people probably start swimming in a fairly leisurely fashion. Um, and then, you know, eventually you might take some lessons, you might discover that you have a, a talent for it, and then you sort of get into the, the club swimming uh, situation if you can afford that. If you can't, you're stuck with what I was doing, which was, you know, summer league and, and, and high school. Um, and... You know, I, I often think, and I write about this, but, you know, I, I often think about, you know, uh, black families and black parents who are having to spend a lot of ta- time, um, if, you know, if, if their child is in club swimming or having to spend a lot of time sort of in these social settings uh, while their children are swimming or practicing or competing or whatever, that are probably fairly hostile in, in any number of ways. Um, and so, you know, like like Matt said, you, you you look at the sport of swimming, especially if you're somebody like me who who's looking in particular to you know for uh, athletes uh, who are not white, and you know there there just have been very few. There have been very few at the uh, at the elite levels, um, and there's I think there's very there's very little uh, real reckoning with that aside from sort of tokenistic. Um, mm-hmm tokenistic use of a few of a few people um mm-hmm. so you know colin jones is constantly being trotted out um simone manuel in recent years although you know if for those of us who are watching um simone manuel's race in uh, in the rio olympics it is very clear up until the last possible second that nobody in the commentating team thought she was going to win that race she's not being there's no discussion of her as a possible player in 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 the in the in the or you know as possible medalist 
up until that moment where suddenly it's clear that she is, you know, she and um, the, the Canadian athlete are, you know, you know, surging towards towards the wall. And so then it's very clear that then, you know, NBC's coverage had to do this sudden shift and the sudden pivot because that was not what they were what they were expecting. So even there, we have, you know, a, a, an exceptional athlete who you know was in the mix. Very clearly, she, you know, she won a, a gold medal. Um, but who just wasn't imagined as what as as a swimmer to focus on or as a swimmer to to create narratives uh, around. So to then have these discussions of Cleet Keller in the past week that are you know talking about you know universal Olympic values um, mm-hmm. or that this isn't a political space or um, you know that this is just a shock. Well, this is this this is a sport that's had problems at the elite level, at the leisure level, and at the public safety level, this sport is riven with with problems around race and around white supremacy um, that have not been thought through, that have not been unpacked. And so in that regard, it cannot be surprising, really, um, that you are at the very least going to see, you're going to have some athletes who are, you know, incredibly conservative politically uh, and who who are Trump supporters. That cannot be a surprise given the long history of the sport uh, and the whiteness of the sport. Yeah, uh, and can I add, uh, Christina? I don't want to cut you off. No, yeah, yeah, please do. Oh, but that, yeah, that's great because um, one thing I wanted to add was um, when you were talking about the microaggressions. I don't think you use the term microaggression, but like uh, the hostile um, experiences from the elite swimmers, like Colin Jones, um, mm-hmm. especially. There's this great um, series, Swimmers for Change, um, this summer, and um, Leah Neal. Uh, Anthony Irvin and Colin Jones all kind all talked about, and this was I think in June this summer. So it was, and, and they were trying to raise. Um, There's a fundraiser for the NAACP um, Legal Defense Fund, and they have like a good 20 minutes of all three of these amazing athletes um, getting vulnerable um, in a really kind of uh, in a way that I haven't been haven't seen these these folks be able to get vulnerable uh, in these kinds of spaces, at least from what I've covered, um, where they're talking about those kinds of hostile experiences. And Colin Jones talks about how he was a few times questioned that he should be going to play the basketball instead of swimming um, as like a very small example of, I think, the bigger issue that you're talking about. Mm-hmm. Um, and then also, like when you're talking about it's not surprising about being Trump supporters, this gets back to those narratives we were talking about. Um, mm-hmm. I listened to a podcast yesterday from The Defector, that um, employee-owned sport media company, and David Roth um, was argue, was arguing that this that Trump supporters are small business owners, basically, um, or people that cast themselves as small business owners or as entrepreneurs. And it's fascinating, too, that language of entrepreneurship and that idea of making your own way um, mm-hmm. and it's the, the narratives of meritocracy that are mapped mm-hmm. onto entrepreneurship are also very much a part of swimming and very much a part of whiteness as well. Um, so yeah, I think those are really good points, especially those different levels that you're talking about, the public safety, the recreational, um, and the uh, elite level. It brings to mind the thing also, Christine, that you, Christina, that you pointed out in one of your twi- Twitter feed threads about how the um, was that 2015 in Houston that pool where that 15 year old um a a girl was black girl was basically thrown down by a cop yeah yeah that was um so 2015 I believe in McKinney uh, Texas um a teenager Dejeria Becton um I believe it was a private uh, pool in the backyard um and there was some sort of pool party 
um, and the police were were called, and she was you know hurled down onto you know onto the ground, um, you know in a in you know in a bathing suit, um, and I believe um, sort of bodily you know that the, the, the police officer was sort of physically holding her down um, uh, a, a, as well, and and you know that I had been thinking about these issues you know for a while. Um, but I think that was maybe a week or two after the um, annual, after USA Swimming's annual resumption of the Make a Splash campaign. I think so. I think you're right. And so, and so, just the the juxtaposition of that to me was really was really stark um, because they were trying to do this whole sort of like Make a Splash week, and of course, you know, Colin Jones was uh, was all across that campaign, um, and then it was complete silence when it came to what, what had happened, uh, in, in, in Texas. Um, yeah, go and, ahead. And Simone Manuel's hometown, I think she's actually talked about this. It's only like 20 minutes from there or 30 minutes from there, if I remember mm-hmm. correctly. Right. Mm-hmm. I think that I, 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 that that is ringing bells. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think too, just sort of trying to draw some sort of threads together and add to this really excellent conversation, even though I, I want to emphasize this is definitely not sort of my field of research, is that I think to kind of add to this issue of sort of pools being a site of trauma, like what trauma of the Black community due to white racial violence, right? If we, we can also connect this to trauma in the public health sector, medicine, the police, right? If we kind of connect all of these things together, like from many, many, for, for many different angles, water has been a site of trauma really for centuries. And I think, um, and again, I really want to suggest that listeners, if you haven't listened to our episode with, with Kevin Dawson and Matt, your episode too, where we really kind of trace out this history and really show that for centuries, sort of like who, like how West African communities in particular had really been like experts in sort of aquatic and all the aquatic arenas, but then how, and indigenous people too, to an extent, and how over the centuries, because of white Western colonization and enslavement, essentially there's sort of white appropriation of aquatic sports and sort of white people that are claiming, I think, Matt, it's like the, the crawl and sort of claiming that different sort of aquatic strokes and activities are white activities and sort of trying to whiten this history over and over and over again to where there's sort of been this pretty very successful narrative that bodies of water are white spaces only. Um, and that, oh, you know, then we're surprised when there are black and other um, athletes of color who are good at, who are really excellent at these sports. And I think Christina, to your point about the surprise of NBC commentators, which I, I need to sort of, I need to find a clip of this because this didn't, it didn't register to me at the time, and but but it makes total sense that they would be surprised that that um, that Simone Manuel would be would would win. And I think too to to kind of um, go to your to your point that we'll talk about later is sort of how is USA Swimming and and I want to say not only USA Swimming this is a, this is a global issue of sort of the white swimming as a sport, um, but also sort of how they are treating black swimmers and how they're like tokenizing them as you as you both pointed out and Simone Manuel very in fact saying, you know, like this is like, I shouldn't be asked about this, right? Like this is not a me problem. Like you shouldn't be asking me these questions. Why aren't you asking white swimmers? And I think that's something we can continue talking about when we're looking more and more at sort of media responses. Um, and sort of one thing that I want to pivot to, I, we are going to return to media responses, but I want to pivot to this um, sort of key part that white media has been saying over and over and over again about sort of Clay Keller um, suffering after his retirement and mental health issues and da 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 and sort of how this mental health is sort of trotted out as an excuse 
for his white supremacy. Um, and, and I, you know, in, indeed, you know, that this sort of issue of transition from an elite career to a non-sport career is something that has been documented and, and, and does need to be studied, right? There, there do need to, things need to be done for elite swimmers to ha- to go through that transition. Um, but the message here and sort of this focus on his homelessness, his poverty, et cetera, et cetera, um, is according to some people on Twitter that I would agree with, it's apologist and that this continued focus on this dark period in his life um, is arguing that his post-career challenges and mental health issues are a cause for his racist attack and his views and things like that. And and this is all to say that mental health is not an excuse for racism. It's like, it's not an excuse for sexual abuse, harassment, homophobia, et cetera. Um, and as some people on Twitter know, um, I mean, I kind of put a call out sort of trying to find literature on this. I didn't have enough time to kind of look into this, the great suggestions that were made, but I did want to point to something that, um, in August, 2020 with summer 2020 being sort of the moment for people, a lot of white people realizing that BLM really is something we need to listen to. Um, there's this organization called inclusive therapists, um, that released a statement to hold a, a white leader in their field named Dr plant or plante, I'm not sure, Um, because this doctor had made an an, an argument about how, quote unquote, vilifying Karens uh, may diminish us all. And, and, and I'll link the statement from this inclusive therapist group that they made. And what they do is they really call out the, the, the racist nature of the field of psychology and therapy as a whole and how it has been structured to protect whiteness, much like swimming has. Um, and, and so Matt, I know that in your work on Michael Phelps and other white athletes, you've studied how the media has upheld the sports whiteness and, 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 and Christina, I know your work has also explored this as well. So I'd love to hear, um, you both talk a bit about, um, how the media has sort of portrayed white athletes, um, compared to black athletes, um, with respect to sort of mental health and challenges and things like that. This framing of uh, of mental of mental health challenges, or you know, the difficulty in transitioning uh, from um, from you know elite sport to sort of you know regular and everyday life. Um, you know, on the one hand, certainly we you know uh, mental health is really important. Um, mm-hmm. People really do struggle with that with that transition. But there are a lot of people who struggle with that transition and do not end up uh, storming the U.S. Capitol. Uh, in support of uh, some sort of attempted coup, um, so you know there, there's also a politics here um, that we that we want to be looking to and that we want to attend to, and I think this is you know really of a piece with a, a lot of the media's real inability over the last four years to properly attend to what has happened in in U.S. politics. Um, the long history of U.S. politics and the you know idea that I think we really need to grapple with that there are large numbers of at the very least the voting public in the United States who find white supremacists and white nationalist views appealing. Um, mm-hmm. And given how large a population that is, it is not a fringe group. Um, it it is only likely um, that that there are going to be uh, Olympic athletes. Um, there and you know I think we'll get to this at some point, but I think there's also some interesting stuff happening here about um, the idea that Olympic athletes are somehow above politics or, or politically neutral um, mm-hmm. that that we want to probably want to get into. But I also there's a certain kind of infantilizing around these mm-hmm. narratives that uh, you know that Cleet Keller, who is as old as I am, uh, 38, uh, and that you know he is not capable somehow of uh, of 
making his own political decisions, that he's not an adult political actor. And it reminded me, and again, this is one of those reasons why I'm just not, I'm just not clear why we are so surprised about this. You know, mm-hmm. it was just five years ago or four and a half years ago that Ryan Lochte was off in Brazil um, with, you know, I, I think he was, he was, if not 30 at the time, I think he was, he, he was maybe just past 30, um, you know, vandalizing property, claiming that, you know, falsely filing uh, reports that he had been, uh, you know, the victim of a crime. And there was, again, just this endless, endless infantilizing of this, that it was, you know, just this voice prank. It's like the, man, the man's over 30. And, you know, mm-hmm. he is also like absconding, you know, racing off, you know, on a, on a plane, you know, to leave Brazil, you know, before um, the you know, Brazilian justice proceedings uh, could, could take place. And, you know, while we tend not to think of Brazil as a, you know, as a black country, this is the country that has the largest number of black people outside of Nigeria, you know, aside from Nigeria. Mm-hmm. So, again, it's this, you know, this, this sense of uh, these, you know, ever innocent um, adults uh, who are being infantilized by the media, who are, you know, off in, in you know, I don't necessarily want to call uh, Brazil a majority black country, but, you know, in a country that has, you know, a lot of people of African, of African descent. Um, and I just, I, I found this, this real parallel uh, here that, again, you know, actual adults are not being held responsible for their actions at mm-hmm. the same time that Tamir Rice, uh, who was a child, mm-hmm. Uh, was murdered by by police officers for holding a toy gun, and so you know again this this very um, this dis completely disparate treatment of mm-hmm. uh, of of white adults who get endless scope um, to be understood as either as children or you know infantilized or you know for whom endless excuses are being made. Uh, as opposed to, you know, in the case of Tamir Rice, you know, black children who are making no mistakes and who are just, you know, playing in their neighborhood, uh, and and who are then killed. Um, and once again, I I think you know the, the media, you know, I, you know, I don't want to be that person who's constantly referring to the media, but you know, Cleek Keller is only a name because of the media and because of you know mm-hmm. sort of the Olympic Olympic spe- uh, spectacle. You know, swimming is not that popular a sport. You know, as much as I love it, it's not that popular a sport <laughs> outside of, of the Olympics. So some of this is entirely made by the media. Most people probably did not know who he was last week. Um, and so the, the people, in place of people's own memories of him, for those people who don't follow swimming, what we have are these narratives, and these narratives are incredibly powerful. Yeah, that's really well put. <laughs> Ryan Lochte, um, just I just double checked. He he was almost thirty-two when yeah. he was um, um, in trouble in Rio and seemed to break a few laws in terms of like false, if nothing else, in terms of false reporting. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and I think that's a really good kind of juxtaposition, especially with Tommy uh, Tommy Rice, um, uh, Michael Brown, um, even Donald J. Trump Jr. Uh, who is older than me, um, and I'm just turned 41. I think he's older than me. Yeah, um, was talked about as being a good kid or a good boy when he made a few mistakes, right? Mm-hmm. When he was working with, allegedly working with the Russians in 2016, and they talked about him being a, just a good boy that maybe made a mistake. And I think that evangelization is fascinating and really important. And it gets me thinking about like the sport more broadly, especially um, I've been revisiting some of my work on Michael Phelps over the last few months. And the 
the idea of mental toughness um, is a narrative and a that that just is all over Michael Phelps's um, a story and a lot of other a lot of other swimming stories. And I'm sure Christina, you kind of probably heard that when you were participating in sport in the sport as well. Like this idea, you need to be mentally tough. And I know Johanna, you you'd heard that too. Um, mm-hmm. And and it's sort of like you, they don't give you necessarily great tools to be quote unquote mentally tough as much as your success demonstrates that you're mentally tough. And then they also don't necessarily give athletes um, ways to kind of transfer that over into their, the rest of their life. If that is a value that needs to be transferred over, I guess we can talk about that too, uh, or think or question that as well. Um, and that, that individuality of that mental toughness, and I'm kind of losing the thread here a little bit, um, but tied to meritocracy of the sport, you can, in the valuing of mental toughness, you can see how an individual swimmer, um, the desocialization aspect after the fact, and then the fail, the quote unquote failures of not being able to figure out what to do with your life after the fact is tied to the sport itself, right? And to the culture mm-hmm. of the sport itself, which as we know is a white sport. And so we can see how those things are kind of linked together. Um, to get back to your like specific question, um, we know the stories about Phelps in 2004 with his um, DUI uh, when he was 19 after the um, Athens Olympics, uh, where he made a quote unquote made a mistake uh, and kind of got to explain away that. Um, in 2008, 2009, when he got picture taken of him smoking marijuana, um, when he was uh, 23 at that point, if my math's right, um, and he was kind of explained away as just um, a good, um, just a just a funny thing that college age kids do all the time, um, completely ignoring the hundreds of black and brown bodies that are hundreds and thousands that were in prison for similar types of activities. Uh, and then also just the terrible treatment of black athletes in the media of like Ricky Williams, Joakim Noah and other black athletes um, for doing a similar thing, or maybe not even smoking as much marijuana as Michael Phelps smoked. Uh, and then in 2016 or 2014, 15, when he got a second DUI um, and it got recast um, very quickly, um, he was called into account, but then it was a mistake. And then um, he was able to talk through and like get help with his addiction. Um, Mm -hmm. Whereas I don't think oftentimes black athletes are given that same sort of grace. I'm thinking about maybe how Tiger Woods was treated in the media and still treated the media in terms of his uh, possible addictions as well and other um, black athletes. Uh, So I think that mental health aspect of it, as you both pointed out, like it's not an excuse for white supremacy. Uh, I mean, for racism and white supremacy, um, but we see it so often being utilized to kind of whitewash um, or um, throw under the carpet some actions um, of white athletes and white men, especially. Um, and then also, I was thinking about this, and I, I think I sent you an email about this, Joanna, but like how mental health is being was used in the summer as a weapon to reopen businesses. And people that don't often activities and actions and policies don't seem to care about mental health, um, care about addressing mental health in like a real way, have no problem utilizing it um, for the services of racism and capitalism. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And just to sort of add to that too, right, is that folk the focus on mental health, it personalizes the issue, right? It makes it 
a personal issue that someone is going through and not part of a, a broader structural issue. Um, and, and then, of course, as we know, that's exactly what people now throw out to explain away school shootings, right? That they're not willing at all to talk about sort of gun control or sort of bigger issues, but say, oh, well, they're just struggling from mental health issues. They ha- they're depressed, da, 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 da. They've been listening to music and, you know, just, or, you know, heavy metal music or sort of whatever it was that came out of this, sort of the Columbine discussion that has since sort of snowballed into this idea that, you know, oh, we don't talk about mental health for white men enough. And okay, well, okay, there is an issue with that. Like, again, that's a personal issue. And it's not actually highlighting the like broader issues with toxic masculinity and white toxic masculinity in particular. Um, And it's not addressing the real problems that need to be solved. And it's not as if the people who throw out this mental health argument, it's not as if they're actually invested are interested in investing in mental health services and making it more affordable. Um, and I think too, and, and, and um, so I, I admittedly have not watched that documentary that like Michael Phelps was a big part of that came out. I don't know if it was over the summer and the fall about mental health stuff. I need to watch it, but I've kind of been hesitant to do so because of how much he's been praised for supporting mental health and elite athletes because I, again, I feel like right now mental health is getting to be more of sort of like a buzzword to explain away other issues and like, yes, okay, so he's using his white male privilege to advocate for mental health and that's great, but then like, where are you when it comes to these issues, right? Where are you when it comes to using your platform or someone who no longer swims, right? Who's not tied in the same ways as like active swimmers are. They're not quite like tied down. At least I think, and Matt, you're welcome to, to complicate this for me. Um, but like, throw your weight behind something that might actually—I don't want to say might—not that they might actually impact people's lives because mental health does. But like, use it to help people that don't look like yourself. Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I I had similar concerns, and I I don't know if Christina, I don't know if you saw that documentary, but um, I had similar concerns before I watched it, um, and I've, um, my dissertation was on Phelps, so I've been spending a lot of time, I spent, spent way, a lot of my life thinking about Phelps, um, uh, for better and worse, um, and, um, if I didn't get a PhD in it, it would be probably stalking, um, but, um, he, he did better than I thought, to be honest, mm-hmm. of talking about structural issues, um, he had a lot of other folks on there, in there. Um, it was a, pr- like, as you point out, that it was a pretty white group of athletes. Um, Lolo Jones, um, Polo Ano, Polo Anton Ano, I think is how you say his name, um, were um, two, the two prominent athletes of color that were in there. Um, but I, he did a pretty good job in his own way, um, which is a very apolitical, quote unquote, apolitical way mm-hmm. of calling out USA Swimming and the United States Olympic Committee. Um, for their shortcomings, but I agree with you. Um, it is telling that I don't know if I want to say telling, but he hasn't. He, as far as I can tell, from what I've been looking up, he has not said anything yet. And I, I would imagine if you're an advocate of mental health issues, you would want to say not all mental health people participate in coups. Mm-hmm. Um, you can't use that as an excuse for racism. Um, and I would. And I think that kind of gets to the point that you're trying to think through and point make as well. 
Yeah. And so, so something we, we've been sort of dancing around, but I really want us to kind of tackle is like the media analysis. Um, because while like, I totally agree with Christina, it's not that his act, well, okay. I guess none of this is really surprising. And my husband was telling me like, why are you so surprised by any of this? Like, cause, cause I was really, I've been really upset about the media focus. And yesterday he looked at me and he was like, I don't understand why you're He's like, I, I get that it angers you, but he's like, if someone had told you that, that like a year ago that this, like if someone had said, if this were to happen, how do you think the media responds? He's like, this is what you would come up with. Like you would have guessed that this would happen, um, which is true if we actually sort of look at sort of the history of media attention. But of course, it still deserves to be sort of analyzed and critiqued. Um, and, and as I mentioned before, the Washington Post one is something that really, really enraged me. Um, and Dr. Victoria Jackson, who is a phenomenal historian of U.S. sport, um, said on Twitter that, quote, it, that it is, quote, flirting dangerously close to a narrative of rehabilitation of reputation by former teammates, coaches, and Olympians, end quote. Um, and then someone else, as I already mentioned, said on Twitter that there are some media takes um, that, quote, articulate Cleet's uh, dissent as apologetics of white supremacy. And, and this is really both of these together are really sort of spot on. And, and essentially what they're saying is that sort of rather than look in the mirror and think a lot more deeply about how Keller and the whole swimming community played a role in this, as, we, as we've been talking about, um, each and every white male that was interviewed, because only white people had a voice in this piece, um, each person refused to see beyond their own supposedly, quote unquote, neutral white standpoint. And, and I'll offer some examples here. Um, U.S. Olympic coach John Urbancheck said that, quote, I just don't know what would have sparked this in him. Um, and he also said that Keller had, quote, a great heart. Now, Urbancheck reportedly in this piece remained in touch with Keller over the years and last spoke with him in November. So during the 2020 election, uh, former teammate Gary Hall Jr., um, who said he's on the opposite side of the political spectrum of as Keller also said that, quote, he was just starting to pull his life back together to see all that implode is just heartbreaking, end quote. And he also called Keller, quote, a decent guy. Um, Hall, moreover, called Keller and his collaborators protesters. Um, and this is really seems like an apology for his for his racism. Um, so how can a decent guy who also has a good heart or had a good heart be synonymous with the white supremacist that I just, I cannot reconcile. Um, and this essentially means that racists can do whatever they want to black and brown people and still be seen by their white teammates and coaches and the community as decent people who have good hearts. Um, and, and there are many, many more quotes to analyze in this piece and other ones um, from Rowdy Gaines, other people. Uh, but, but I think listeners get the gist. And, and so I'm really curious, Christina and Matt, uh, what are your thoughts on these things? So, uh, I mean, if you'll allow me a brief, uh, a brief detour, um, one of the things, so as, as you mentioned, uh, in your introduction, um, I work on, uh, on disaster studies and that, I think I've also taught some, uh, some disaster history. Um, and I, you know, I'm currently teaching in the, uh, in the United Kingdom and, um, in the first two years I was here, I was teaching at the University of Liverpool. And so, um, uh, I was teaching, uh, what is called a special subject, uh, in the, uh, in the UK. Um, which is something similar-ish to a senior seminar, and then there's a sort of big what, what they refer to as a as a dissertation, which in the U.S. you refer to as a undergraduate thesis. Um, and so I had a few people who were working on the a few students who worked on the Hillsborough um, disaster, mm -hmm. uh, which mm -hmm. uh, if listeners aren't familiar, 
Um, this was uh, a uh, this was a stadium disaster in the late uh, 1980s in Sheffield, uh, where a number uh, where, where 96 um, Liverpool supporters were uh, basically crushed uh, to death due to um, the due to the um, poor policing uh, and poor policing practices of the Sheffield uh, of the Sheffield police that were on site. Um, and there's has been subsequently a lot of um, uh, there's been a lot of sort of obfuscation of of what happened and, and you know attempts to to um, blame the Liverpool supporters who died and the victims as opposed to uh, blaming the uh, the stadium organizers. And one of the things that uh, was really interesting the student uh, that the student found or a few students found when they were doing these projects is that part of why the original reporting was so disastrous. Sorry, that is a terrible, that is a terrible pun that I was not intending. <laughs> uh, part of why the initial reporting was so, was so terrible um, is because the people who were on the scene were sports reporters who were not prepared and who did not, as a matter of practice, take on these really difficult political or local or social issues in their, in their reporting. So that the people who were providing, who you know, who were providing the majority of the information, were also not were, were not the same people uh, who had experience uh, thinking through issues of um, uh, of um, sort of regional issues. There was there's a lot of there's a uh, there's a um, antagonism between, in particular, the Conservative Party and the City of Liverpool. Um, and so they just weren't they 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 were in part not prepared, and then were the people through whom we were learning of uh, this of this information. And, you know, I think there's also something similar going on here where we're getting a lot of this information from sports reporters um, who are the people who are prepared to, you know, even begin to contextualize cleat color. Again, this is a sport that is a fairly obscure sport outside of Olympic years. And I just can't imagine that these uh, writers are spending a lot of time thinking through race, uh, thinking through uh, the politics of race, the politics of whiteness. Um, and so I think that, that is that is part of what's what's going on is that um, and, and I don't I don't say that to make any excuses. I think these these uh, reporters should be required um, to develop these skills uh, at the same time that we know that they are that they're not. But one of the things that 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 struck me with this with this Washington Post piece, and I agree with you, Joanna, this piece is is pretty grim. Um, mm. Actually, it's something that it, it connects with something that Matt was just talking about, about the mental toughness, um, because what was interesting to me about reading this piece is that they so clearly have to in, tell readers, basically tell readers who, who Cleet Keller is or, or who he was as an athlete, uh, because he's not he's not a household name. And so they do this by like really pumping up this sort of anchor leg heroics. Um, and so this, you know, the, so, you know, I'm looking at this, at this, uh, at this piece now. So, you know, he's being described as, uh, as a carefree spirit, a mighty, uh, freestyler. Um, he anchored this 800 meter freestyle relay that vanquished, uh, the Australians. Um, and then there is some other, um, there's some other narratives later about, um, the kind, you know, that he held off Australian legend Ian Thorpe, uh, in, in the anchor leg. Uh, Phelps said, I knew he would come through, um, you know, and, and, and on and on and on. And then his coach says, uh, every time we really wanted to, to win a relay, we put Cleet at anchor. Uh, he wasn't afraid of straining until it hurt. Uh, he wasn't afraid of, of being challenged. 
Um, and on the one hand, it was interesting reading this because I totally forgotten about this particular race. Because in my mind, you know, whenever I think of like anchor legs that I am, you know, going to be paying attention to and remembering, it's Jason Muzak and not Pete Keller. So it was interesting to like watch this narrative reemerge uh, uh, about this. But there's also something there about the, um, despite being carefree, despite you know, be, you know, showing up to practice late, the sort of selfless hero who is willing to put his body on the line. Uh, to bring home gold for the U.S. And the fact that we are getting to those narratives in this piece well before we're getting to any discussion of his social media feed, of his, of, of the, you know, the, the extent to which he's really um, sort of getting, you know, getting further and further into this, in, in, into his levels of Trump support, that the first framing of that is not just that he had this rough time, but also when he, you know, when he wasn't having this rough time, when he was a good guy, uh, you know, he was all in for the country, um, I think is, is, is a really concerning framing uh, uh, around, uh, around this. Um, and then the other thing I would say about this piece is I don't know if it's Hall or Rowdy Gaines or his coach, but there's somebody here who says, you know, why would he risk it all? It might have been Hall. Um, why would he risk it all? Why would he throw it all away? And I, I just don't know that he would have seen it. Like I don't get any sense that he would have seen it as risking anything. He showed up in the middle of an insurrection, one of the tallest men around, in Olympic garb. Mm -hmm. this is not somebody who was fearful or you know who who felt like he was risking anything and i think and, and you know again i think that this you know clearly applies to many of the insurrectionists who are you know showing up with you know who, who i mean some of whom had work badges on um they were you know proudly streaming to social media um these were people who did not expect there to be any risk and any consequences to this action which is again getting us right back to to white supremacy. Um, you know, there is there is no black person who is going to even you know who's going to a lawful protest and a lawful peaceful protest who isn't concerned about what might happen at that protest mm -hmm. or what you know, what consequences might come to them, even again if it's lawful and permitted and peaceful. And so again, there's there's this you know people are using you know the the the, the word white, white privilege, and I think people are right to question that. Uh, whether that's an appropriate framing for this, but there is a real privilege in thinking that you can storm the seat of the seat of government with your work ID um, and just you know showing up on all kinds of feeds, uh, social media feeds, and that nothing's going to happen. And so it's not at all clear to me that he thought he was risking anything because there was he, there was in in most circumstances he would not have been risking anything. He's not hiding. He's not. He is. You know, very clearly there. He's very and he's very identifiable. Yeah. And I think that framing of of risk is again uh, a a really alarming one uh, from that that's doing a lot of work in this piece. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and let me just jump in really quickly um, before Matt, before you start that the whole fact that he's six six, like my husband is six seven, and maybe his parents made him like painfully aware of his height, but like, you know, when you are towering over people, mm -hmm. right? Like that is not something that you are unaware of. And I, I think you're right to point out that he knew what he was doing. He is tall. He is a, a muscular built guy. He had his Olympic jacket on, right? Those are all very intentional choices that he made. 
Um, so I just, I just wanted to point that in because my husband doesn't like going to like crowded places because he's like, I stand out. He doesn't like to stand out. And that's a personal thing with him. But, but again, like when you're tall, you're aware of how tall you are. I just mm-hmm. kind of wanted to put that in. Yeah. And I, that, great point. I mean, that was a really good point by Christina. Um, really good analysis. Um, yeah. And like, I think that the you, Johnny, you just talked about too, like it's a, he made these choices and we can't ignore the fact that those were choices he made. And it gets kind of back to Christina's point earlier about the infantilization of him as well. Um, I, um, I really like the point that um, Christina made about like the, the narrative of her- heroism. Um, <laughs> and it's helpful to have someone on here that doesn't study sport as much as I do or swimming as much as I do, because it reminded me of one of my earlier arguments when I was trying to convince my the, my advisor that I needed to write about swimming um, because it's not that big of a sport. So it clearly like the way that they introduce who Cleet Keller is, is really important and does so much ideological work. Um, like Christina points out. Um, and I can't help but also see them. First of all, I think only men, it's only white men that were interviewed as well. It's not just only white athletes, but it's only men that were, that I, were if I remember I, correctly. I think his ex-wife has like one or two That's lines right. in there. It, it's yeah, very brief, but yeah. Um, and it, um, but it, like the, there's the tenets of, I mean, not the tenets, the um, themes of masculinity that are part of the sport, that are part of this as well, right? Like the vanquishing, um, putting his life on the line, like willing to sacrifice his body for the nation's good. Like all of these sort of tropes of nationalism and the national body are part of this as well and when he was swimming um mm-hmm. in the late 90s early 2000s up into 2008 off some of the a crisis of masculinity was a part of that sport right because one just the structure i mean the uniform of the sport right a lot of people mm-hmm. were worried that boys didn't want to swim because of the small suits um and they were excited about phelps being so successful and so popular and phelps using white, I mean, blue collar masculinity as part of the way that he sold himself um, mm-hmm. to sell little boys to the sport as well, to join the sport. You can still see the numbers, um, women, girls and um, and young women outnumber boys and young men um, in USA Swimming. Um, but that's part of it. And then also sort of that Title IX um, scare and the, that, that gender scare of um, a lot of men's swimming teams getting cut mm-hmm. uh, because schools purposefully misinterpreted title nine uh and a lot of the swimmers had uh, this kind of theme of anti-woman um war on men's athletes was part of that sport as well um so like those narratives were a part of uh that sport at least i would argue as well that kind of feeds into it um i i don't think um Joanne, I don't think you sent this to Christina because it's just brand new, but Swimming World had an article that came out yesterday mm-hmm. and had a quote from um, um, Keller where from a 2014 interview where he said where and it kind of speaks to like is privilege the is white privilege the right is the right word because he was talking about how quote being good at an Olympic sport is almost as much a curse as a blessing because I kind of got a skewed sense of reality. If I was a good basketball, if I was as good at basketball or football as I was at swimming, I wouldn't have had to worry about that stuff because I would have had lots of money. You make just enough swimming to be comfortable, and then you have to get real after your swimming career ends. And that way you have to have your head on straight. And to me, like that invocation of basketball and football 
might point to like some of those notions about white racial resentment as well and that white lash um, that a lot of scholars have talked about um, that really escalated in the 90s and then and then even took off even further after 9-11 um, as sort of a, a response to gains made in the civil rights era, at least in, the, in mm-hmm. this country. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I, I agree with your husband. I don't know why we were surprised. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know. But, um, it, but it is, um, it's been disappointing. Um, and, and I think Christina's right too. Like part of the reason is the folks that are asking these questions and covering this are sports writers. And unfortunately mm-hmm. right now, at least, um, sports writers haven't done, uh, most sports writers haven't done a good job of reconciling and considering these things. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So, you know, if I could, if I could come in on this, on this thing, mm-hmm. you know, on this question of why, of why the surprise, because it, I mean, I think part of the surprise is because of the the narrative around the Olympics and what the Olympics are, you know, supposedly are. And so I think, you know, there there is this popular narrative. And, and you know, while we know um, that the Olympics are not a an apolitical or a neutral project, you know, they are a deeply, deeply political project. That's not necessarily the popular narrative. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I think in, in, in the U.S. in particular, you know, it's interesting thinking about um, the Olympics uh, and how and how the U.S. handles the Olympics and how it sort of you know uh, almost deifies its athletes um, while you know while living in another country that handles things somewhat somewhat differently. Um, you know, I, I do think you know those of us who you know are were growing up in, in in the U.S. You know, we're we're growing up on a diet of that NBC narrative about the Olympics as the you know the pursuit of um, you know per, of of athletic perfection. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's just completely apolitical uh, si- situation. I think this is probably especially the case for those of us who are, uh, you know, who were born in the 80s. Um, and, uh, and so, you know, and, and by that, you know, the, the point I'm making, you know, the 80s, late, late, um, late 70s, you know, so not people who were really all that sentient when you had the 1980 and 1984 uh, Olympic boycotts uh, of, of, the, of the various uh, locations. And, you know, since then, the Olympics have been, you know, have not been marked by as much political scandal or not, not political scandal, but as much uh, political maneuvering publicly um, as, as they had been, you know, in, in the 1960s uh, and the, the 1970s and early 1980s. And I think, you know, there are a lot of critiques of the, of, of the Olympics that are happening right now, a lot of movements to, um, to stop the Olympics, but I don't mm-hmm. get the sense that they are, um, quite breaking through mainstream discourse in in, right. in the same way um and so there is this 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 the sense that these are you know real life heroes that these athletes are real life heroes um who are participating in this lofty pursuit uh, of athletic perfection um that is completely separated from 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 politics and so I think that that probably accounts for some of our surprise, even those of us who know better um, still mm-hmm. have that sort of jarring moment, because in our minds, even though we you know, often like immediately overcorrect or you know, immediately correct for that, in our minds, the Olympics still symbolize this thing, uh, because that is the narrative that they, that's the way that they're packaged to us. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, definitely. Um, and so I had two sort of separate questions about this, but in in the in the spirit of sort of 
um, saving some time because I know we need to wrap up in a bit. I'm going to kind of try to combine them as eloquently as possible um, and sort of look at um, responses um, from USA Swimming, Team USA, but also sort of individual swimmers. Um, and USA, I mean, but, um, I'll, we'll link the statements, um, in the show notes. Um, but I guess what, what I sort of wanted to ask is sort of the extent to which, um, either of you, I don't want to say surprised because as we talked about, we shouldn't be surprised, but sort of, what do you think about the statements that, that have been made from the, from the various sort of positions in the swimming community and sort of what it is that the statements focus on versus what is it that they are leaving out or sort of silencing? Um, and sort of how do you think we should be critiquing um, these statements that have been made? Um, I guess I'll, uh, so the USA Swimming one, um, I mean, they all kind of do that thing that we've been talking about, uh, at least the ones I've read, um, and individualize this issue, right? And it's about Mr. Keller's actions or not even, they, some of them don't even name Mr. Keller. All right. I think the USOPC one just said an alumni Olympian, um, which is a fascinating thing to think about, especially after the great point Christina just made. Um, mm-hmm. But like it, it's so it 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 it, it reduces it to an individual, and then the USA Swimming one basically just says we don't agree with um, his actions. They don't represent the values or a mission of USA Swimming, and we'll mm-hmm. talk about the values, in, or we could talk about the values in a little bit. Um, but he's not been a member of this organization since 2008. And it kind of just ends there, right? Uh, we stand with Team USA and echo their plea to celebrate a diversity of backgrounds and beliefs, stand together against hatred and divisiveness. And so, okay, um, sure, your, your vision and the vision of USA Swimming is to inspire and enable our members to achieve excellence in the sport of swimming and in life. So what did you do? Like one thing that you could ask, and I don't know if it'd be productive, but one thing I would initially ask would be, all right, so your sport produced Keller and produces other mm-hmm. people that support Keller in these actions. What does that say about your sport? Right. What does that say about your sport that a guy thought that it was okay to wear his jacket to a coup, as we've talked mm-hmm. about multiple times? Um, but also, like, you can't hide behind the fact that he was he, he's no longer a member because if you look at your rule book, <laughs> Code of Conduct 304.2, any member, former member, or prospective member of USA Swimming is subject to jurisdiction of the board of review. Mm-hmm. And you can be fined or sanctioned. I, I honestly don't know if that's the right way to go. But if you wanted to actually stand up for what you say you did, mm-hmm. uh, what you say you do, um, if you wanted to have the back of those athletes that you've been using as tokens to build your brand and to build diversity initiatives, um, you could say, based on his actions, former member of USA Swimming, um, Clay Keller is no longer allowed to come to any of our events, no longer invited mm-hmm. to any reunions, no longer invited um, to uh, participate in any sponsorship deals or whatever it is, um, as sort of like to draw that line, that, that line in the sand. Uh, because in your own code of conduct, you do have jurisdiction over former members. Um, if you read it the way that I'm reading it. Um, mm-hmm. They obviously are trying to do a narrow reading so that way they don't have to do anything else other than just release that statement and say, he hasn't been a member for 12 years. We don't need to have anything to do with him. Yeah. Thank Which, you. You know, with a, I, feel like that is, I feel like that's so, it's so telling because if, you know, if this was, if, if, if it was a different situation and, you know, Pete Keller was in the news at the same time 12 years later for, you know, something a little bit more positive, they would not have hesitated to claim him uh, as a member of the of the organization. So, 
you know, you know nobody, nobody is 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 fooled here um, by by this quick disavowal of his of his membership. Um, you know, I think these these statements are you know as anodyne as as we would expect them uh, as we would expect them to be. Um, I think what's interesting about them is the sort of quick pivoting to this idea of value. Excuse me, of values. Mm-hmm. Sorry about that. Um, of values, of missions, of the Olympic project, and and the sort of you know. So again, this quick diversion of our attention back to this supposedly apolitical uh, uh, project without actually specifying what. Uh, you know, as, as Matt was saying, and that, you know, and I thought that this was a really important point. Without specifying what these values are, this mission is what the Olympic project is doing. Um, there's a statement from the from the USA swimming statement that is um, that says it's, it echoes Team USA's plea to celebrate our diversity of backgrounds and beliefs and stand together against hatred and divisiveness and use our influence to create positive change in our communities. Well, you know, again, if we return to 2015. USA Swimming is silent when there were, you know, black children who were being mm-hmm. hurled to the ground by police officers at pools. USA Swimming was nowhere to be seen. So yeah. again, I have questions here in in this pivot move um, about whether they are in fact creating quote unquote positive change in our communities. Mm-hmm. Whose communities uh, are are mm-hmm. are they referring to here? Um, and and it it. Again, it's it's not surprising because these statements are always so uh, so um, they always have so little heft um, in, in in them and so and, and so little drive. Um, but it is, I guess, you know, to, to return to sort of the word of the day, it is telling that this is the that this is the response. And it's clear that it was only made sort of after that social media outcry. Otherwise, I think mm-hmm. they would have tried to to stay silent for as long as possible. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, I think I like how you really like broke down that statement, Christina, and really like talked about like positive change for whom and sort of what is being done. Because even this idea that we're, quote, we're celebrating our diversity of background and beliefs. Mm -hmm. So like, what are the diversity of beliefs and backgrounds that you are celebrating? Right. Like, you know, know, beliefs that are white supremacist and, um, you know, just I don't know, it it just really leaves a lot of questions. So like you said, if you bring up values and you need to be prepared to say what those values are and stand behind them, when, as you point out, it's so easy to poke holes in them. And it echoes what Gary Hall Jr. said in that piece, Mm -hmm. in those few pieces about like just he just separates this as a difference of opinion. Mm -hmm. Yeah. and I think I don't know if we've said this, but I'm I, very clearly the, that coup was trying to disenfranchise millions of black voters. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and th- like you said, like so, the difference of opinion is I think that black people should be allowed to vote, and you don't think that black people should be allowed to vote, and we're just going to celebrate that diversity of opinion. Right. Um, mm-hmm. uh, it, it, it's yeah, exactly what you guys were saying. But and, and to, to pick back up on on, on what uh, Matt just said, there, I think this is actually really really crucial for Gary Hall Jr. It is just a difference of opinion because for him, uh, it there the stake there are no stakes here, and this is you know this is one of the really key issues with so many of these sports that are predominantly white sports. These aren't the athletes for whom uh, for whom these 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 politics have real stakes. Um, and you know these athletes are for the most part not in communities that have you know for for, for whom these politics are not a matter of of difference of opinion but can really be mm-hmm. life or death. I mean you know 
as we all know, we are in the middle of a pandemic uh, in which uh, black and brown people are uh, are are suffering disproportionately. Uh, you know, this is especially the case in 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 the U.S. And so the idea that this is just you know a a an abstract difference of opinion, where for black people this is you know the the you know widespread death in their communities uh, mm-hmm. from police violence. Um, from, you know, disproportionately bad health outcomes and from, you know, in, in the middle of this COVID pandemic, you know, there aren't enough athletes in USA Swimming for whom these politics actually really matter. And so then we get this sort of like, oh, well, he used to be a great guy, says Rowdy mm-hmm. Gaines. Um, or, you know, it's just so heartbreaking from, from well, you know, what's heartbreaking is that, is that you know, democracy is under attack um, in the middle right. of a pandemic that is affecting, uh, that is affecting Black and Brown people. Uh, and indigenous people, uh, the 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 most like that's what's heartbreaking. Like, what is it? Mm-hmm. Nearly four hundred thousand people have died in this pandemic. I, I I am not really able to focus a lot of my uh, emotional sadness on Cleet Keller uh, at, at at this particular moment. But clearly, a lot of these a lot of these athletes and former athletes really are able to. And that you know, I think that again tells us a certain tale. Yeah, I hadn't even thought, I haven't even thought about quite in sort of the emotional energy that that some people are able to devote to his actions versus other people that are just tapped out because they're just like, our, you know, our communities are under attack. And I think too, the focus on sort of the attack against democracy, like, okay, but that assumes that this is like the single attack against democracy that they're willing to stand up against when like, arguably, A, have we ever been a true democracy here in the US? And B, what else has been what's what else has been going on the last four years? Right? As if this one moment is the only thing that's happened. Um and, and I think too that the focus on nationalism and democracy, it's it's skirting the racism issue, I think, completely. Mm-hmm. Even though anyone who knows anything about our nation's history and nationalism and democracy knows that anti-blackness is at the core of it. But right, but it's the framing here that again, allows people to sort of like elide those issues. Um, so I think, yeah, I think your, your points are, ab- both of your points are absolutely spot on. Um, so I just want to say to you both, thank you so much for hopping on and also in such sort of such late notice being willing to share, share your thoughts and sort of what's been going on and how the media has been, been sort of handling this. Um, this is very much still a developing story and we hope that more people continue to have sort of critical takes about how the media has been portraying this and apologizing for Clay Keller's racism and the racism of this, uh, the sport community. Sorry, the swimming community, but the sport community, Olympic communities broadly. Um, So Christina and Matt, thank you so much for your time and your really fabulous insights today. Thank you for having me. I really enjoyed our, our conversation. Yeah, thank you. It was great. Thank you for listening to another episode of the End of Sport podcast. If you're enjoying the show, please feel free to reach out to us on Twitter or Instagram at End of Sport Pod. Check out our website at www.theendofsport.com. And if you're feeling particularly generous, please support the show through our Patreon, which can be found on our website. Until next time, friends. Yeah.